You're listening to the Weekly Portland Podcast. For a complete list of episodes, visit pdxpod.com or find us on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Remember to like, share and subscribe. 29-year-old Christina Ebersol began losing her eyesight in September of 2012. She was declared legally blind just two years later. Despite her handicap, she now studies under the principal violist of the Oregon Symphony and practices upwards of six hours a day on her instrument. A student of Arabic linguistics during her enlistment in the U.S. Army, Private Ebersol has separated from the U.S. Armed Forces to pursue a Bachelor of Music degree at Portland State University. My name is Gregory Day. You're listening to the Weekly Portland Podcast. We have a spanking new website on WordPress. You can reach us at pdxpodcast.com or pdxpod.com. Oh, isn't that lovely? I don't know if you guys have realized this yet, but I'm a very silly person. You may pick up on that if you're a regular listener. So the following is a chat I had with Christina at the music department at PSU. We snuck into one of the rooms there and recorded this surreptitiously. Whilst very talented, I found her very grounded even though she's been getting a ton of press. Let's meet our special guest today, Christina Ebersol on pdxpodcast.com. My mom put me in piano lessons when I was seven, and after that, I just fell in love with music and the whole idea of it. I started flute in fourth grade. Um, I picked up the bass guitar in middle school, and a couple months later tried out for the jazz band. I was the first female bass guitar player for the jazz band. That was fun. Um, continued flute and piano as I went into high school and then they needed a tuba player so over the summer I learned tuba Um, at one point in time they needed an oboe player so I learned the oboe Um, I did roughly 13 instruments growing up and then I decided I wanted to go to college for music so I started my college experience and after I graduated with my associate's degree I ran out of money Um, I got invitations to Juilliard. I got invitations to Millican University, which is a really small, great conservatory in Illinois, and I just couldn't afford it. So I thought the next idea would be to join the military, do my four years, and they'll help pay for my college. All right. <laughs> yes, I am, I am an army brat now. So I joined the United States Army as an Arabic linguist, which is where I met my husband at DLI in Monterey, California. And you guys spoke a bit of Arabic out out there in the corridor, correct? What did you guys say to each other? (laughs) He told me to call him when I was done so he could come meet me. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, He's much better at it than I am. I've let mine go quite a bit, so I, I don't speak it nearly as much, but I still remember quite a bit. Okay. Um, so... After two years, I got sick, and I was honorably discharged from the military, and I decided it was time to go back to school, and I knew since I was a kid that I always wanted to play the viola, and my mom wouldn't let me because I already played 13 instruments, so I wasn't allowed. So uh, with my money from getting out of the Army, I bought my first viola, and I called up a teacher who was an hour and a half away from where we lived. She was the closest teacher to me, and I started viola lessons. 
Um, my first viola was $1,000, and that included the viola, the case, and the bow. And I think some really cheap rosin, which you put on the bow to make the noise, because you have to create friction between the hair and the strings. Right. Yeah, so my first one was $1,000, and my husband actually went with me to get that at the time, and he encouraged it. Um, and that one lasted for a couple of months, and then I outgrew it really quick. It was just, it, I needed something new. And so my next one cost 6500 and I was able to trade mine in and get a really good deal on it. And my husband was with me for that one as well. The one I have now is my baby. It's my prize. It's everything that I love. Um, total, it costs about $23,000. So it's not cheap. <laughs> um, the bow was handmade for me by a luthier. Um, it was $5,500. Um, it's gorgeous. I love it. Um, his name was Douglas Ragus. He's up in um, Michigan. He's fabulous. Um, my viola is a 2010 Douglas Lay, and he's up in um, up near Chicago. Um, absolutely fantastic luthier. I, I I love what he did with it. And then I take it all of the time to Caitlin Pugh, who's my luthier here in town, and she keeps it nice and wonderful and makes adjustments to it to make it continue sounding wonderful. So <laughs> <laughs> quite an investment, this thing. It is, yeah. Well, when people don't realize as you as you play, you have to add things and change your strings every couple of months, and so it's it's an ongoing investment. Yes. And you have a very supportive husband. We uh, we talked <laughs> out there in the hallway. A uh, very animated character. Yes. You guys met while in school as you were learning Arabic. Yes. <laughs> so how did this love story begin? Uh, well, he... I'm getting nosy here. Oh, no, that's okay. It's this is like the TMZ <laughs> podcast. That's okay. I don't know if I'm quite as interesting for TMZ, but uh, I was a PFC, a private first class, and I was stationed in Charlie Company. Um, we were the Arabic company of... Charlie DIY. Company. Yeah, so you have Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo. Um, Alpha and oh, Charlie yes. Company usually house the Arabic linguists. Uh, I think Bravo was the Spanish linguist. Um, I, I, I want to say Delta was Korean and Chinese. So every every company had their own uh, linguist-specific uh, area. And ours was Arabic. <clears throat> and I was there first, and I was studying and getting ready for class. And um, my now husband walked in. He's a, He was an NCO, a non-commissioned officer. He was an E5 at the time, a sergeant. Oh. And he walks in. <laughs> He walks into the company, and my very first meeting of him was he was he was on CQ duty. He was on staff duty, so it was his job to watch over the barracks where we all slept for the night and make sure that nobody set anything on fire or did anything they weren't supposed to. And right. so he ordered food out, and they delivered it, and it was Chinese food. And they bring him his food, and they didn't bring him rice. And my husband is Chamorro. He's from Guam, so he eats rice with almost every single meal. He would if I let him. And when he saw there was no rice, he said, hey, I ordered food. Where's my rice? And the guy said, oh, that's a la carte. You have to, you have to order it extra. It's extra money. And my husband got so mad. He was like, what do you mean? This is a Chinese restaurant. How can you not give me rice? And he starts storming down the hallway, screaming about how he was going to burn down rice patties in China and how mad he was. And that was my first impression of him was just this big Six foot tall power lifter screaming about burning down rice patties in China. He's a power lifter. He's a power lifter. Yeah, Yeah, he's 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 a little over three hundred pounds, and he can bench 
like a car. <laughs> so the last I remember, he was benching in the 500s. That's the last. Is I he remember. still in school himself? He's in school now. Yes, we're both under the GI Bill, and he's studying Arabic again. So, but his his dream is to open up a restaurant, so or a food cart. And what does he plan to do with uh, with this language skill? Uh, I think it's more about now he can go to the country and order food. <laughs> so <laughs> he's a foodie. So, um, but he he works for um, well, he doesn't work for anybody, but he volunteers with it. He helps refugees with it right now. So, really. He does, yeah. He works for um, volunteers for Catholic charities, and they have um, a program where if you speak another language, you come in, and uh, any refugees or immigrants who may not necessarily know English well enough who need help getting apartments or jobs or just some sort of relief aid can come in, and he can be there to interpret for them. So it's very exciting for him. He loves using, he just loves the language and the food. So. And how, how did you guys end up in Portland? Well, <laughs> so he was stationed at Fort Carson um, before we moved here, which is in Colorado, um, Colorado Springs. And That's a beautiful area, by the way. It's gorgeous, and we miss it. We love it. The weather there, I miss the sunshine. I'm a sunshine person, so Portland's been very difficult for me, That's especially this last year, as you know. Yeah. Um, but he got out of the army and at that point in time, after all of my medical stuff, I was ready to get back to school. And so I auditioned at five different places. I got into three of them. And so we went and talked to the different professors at the different places. And one of them was here. And I met Joel Belgique, who is my teacher. He's the principal violist of the Oregon Symphony. He's a violist in Fear No Music Ensemble. Absolutely fantastic. Most inspiring teacher. Just amazing. And um, we clicked, and he... What do you mean he clicked? It's, it's when, you, when you're taking lessons from somebody, uh, it's a very personal thing. Um, they're, they're not just instilling in you knowledge, like they're not just lecturing in front of you, but they're trying to transfer their musical interpretation and their ideas into you and, and help you push your passion into more than just what it is now and so he's a passionate teacher very passionate yes. that's very important it's very important i was yeah. in choir for many many years and you you never forget your your most passionate teachers mm-hmm. no he's passionate and inspiring and he's it, it so comes full out in the music i think i think so it really does really so he's made you better a hundred percent, yeah. Uh, I've been really lucky in my teachers. My first teacher was Christine Bach, and she was the principal violist of the Illinois Symphony Orchestra. And she, you could just tell when you walk in the room and pick up your viola that she loves what she does and that she just wants you to love it as much as she does. And with Joel, you walk in the room and pick up your viola, and he's just so excited to show you something and to be in it with you. And, and when you do something, he just gets so excited that you can do it. And it's just, it's always inspiring to be there. And he always inspires me to want to look more and do more. Now, the viola has a richer sound than a regular violin. Yes. So a violin is higher. It's a fifth higher, yes. if, if you know music. Um, right. The viola is, is a fifth lower, and it's an octave higher than the cello. So it's a warmer, richer tone, um, not quite as delicate as the violin. you got to dig in a little bit more to make that sound. We like that, that deep, warm, crunchy sound that the violins try to stay away from. <laughs> So I always considered it's more like dark chocolate. Like violin is almost like 
milk chocolate, white chocolate, but viola is dark chocolate. It's rich and luscious and wonderful. And it's better for you. Oh, it is better for you. I like that. <laughs> so we ended up here specifically so I could study under Joel, but also because my husband's kids live a couple hours away, so that way we can see them more often because being in Colorado and Washington was hard. They live in Washington, so he was missing them, and they're quite young, so he would like to be around them more. Joel took a liking to you. Well, I don't know if he took a liking to me. I took a liking to him. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think he likes me. I'm pretty sure. He tolerates me quite Speaks well. Speaks very well of you in the articles I've read. By the yes. way, you've had a lot of press. I, I've had a little bit, yes. A lot. <laughs> More when so than I was ever expecting. <laughs> yes, you've been on KGW, <laughs> COIN, KBTV. In the Oregonian. And the Oregonian. Yes. Uh, there's more coming. Yes. <laughs> Why is everybody checking you out? Uh, well, everyone tells me I have an inspiring story. I think it's just my life, so it's hard to imagine that. I'd like to think that I, I play this bo- wooden box well enough that people are interested in that aspect. So that's the hope. <laughs> Why do you think people are inspired by you? Um, probably because I'm a blind musician, and that's, an un- that's still an unusual thing in our society, blind musician overcoming things. <laughs> you also have a great passion yes, for the music. I do. I, I can't imagine doing anything else, and I've tried. I've tried so... Oh, there, there are so many people who tell you, whatever you do, don't make a life in music. Just 100%, do not do. Do not commit yourself to it. But if you literally can't live for anything else then you should be a musician. And that's the position I'm in. I've, I've tried so hard to be a, a cook or be a linguist or be a, a anything else that I know would just be so much easier of a life. But I just love what I do so much. And picking up my viola is the best part of every day. Five to six hours a day practice with a viola. Yes. Minimum. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Minimum. I give myself one day off um, because I have to. Otherwise, your body just gets tired. Um, I've taken lessons from Lisa Marsh, who is our our faculty body map instructor, and she's taught me how to take better care of my body so that way the five to six hours of practice a day don't completely destroy me. That makes a lot of sense. It's you know, very important. makes a lot of sense. Because mm-hmm. that's how you end up with carpal tunnel or tendinitis or arthritis when you as a musician, and those things are career killers. No matter what aspect of a musician you want to be in, those things will destroy it because you need every part of your body. People don't realize it, but being a musician is a very athletic way of life. You're, you're moving constantly and using your body and your mind all at the same time, and for hours a day, be it in the pit or a solo concert, it's, it's a very physical way of life. And your husband, uh, he is a big help. He's very supportive of your work. <laughs> supportive, yes. Sometimes He's quite a character, this guy. Really he like really guy. is. We're very yin and yang. He's very doesn't believe in social norms. He doesn't believe in um, biting his tongue. 
uh, he says what he feels. I noticed. Yes, yes. I wish we would have got him here. <laughs> would have made for a very interesting, uh, very <laughs> interesting conversation. It's always. Uh, but he's very supportive of you. He's supportive of what I do. Um, he's also the person that if he didn't think I was good enough to pursue this dream, he would be like, "Hey, have you ever thought about accounting? You might, you might excel at that." <laughs> Uh, he is very supportive, although I think um, I, I think he sweats a little bit anytime I joke about buying a new viola. I think it scares him a little <laughs> bit. But no, he is. Um, he loves when I play because he sleeps and he dreams of the music, and that's what he tells me. You emailed me. Yes. And I'm not quite sure how. How I emailed you? Is that ignorant (laughs) of me to even ask? No, it's not. People don't realize how much accessible technology is out there. And it's, I really didn't realize it until I came to Portland because I didn't have a lot of resources in Colorado. I only lived there for just under a year. I moved there from Illinois. And I was, when I was declared legally blind, it was when I was in Colorado. And they were like, hey. At what age? I was, oh gosh, that was 2015. So I was 26 at the time. Okay. 27, 26, 27. With full 2020 vision before? With glasses, yeah. I've mm-hmm. always had crappy vision, but with glasses, I was able to see just fine and, and drive. And um, over the course of. Uh, I was discharged from the military in 2012, and by 2015, I was legally blind. And it was just, it, it was it was a really hard thing to overcome. But um, when I did, and I moved here, and I got set up with the Oregon Commission for the Blind, they, they introduced me to all of this amazing technology that existed. So to email you, I either use my phone or my computer. And for my phone, I have an iPhone now, although Samsung has the same features, but for iPhone, it's called VoiceOver. And all you do, if you don't even want to like find it in your settings, you just click on Siri and you say VoiceOver on. And from there, it'll read every single app that you have. You double tap and it'll tell you, hey, this is mail, open mail to double tap. So you double tap it and you just type things out and it tells you exactly what you're spelling. And it just, it lays out everything that's on the screen for you, except for pictures but they've actually started working on that technology. Facebook now has um, it's a text description for pictures, and you click on it, and it'll say, two people smiling outdoors. So they're, they're working on the technology. Kidding. Yeah. You're kidding. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating what's being developed nowadays. It, that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Any of the technologies you're taking advantage of? Oh, I take advantage of everything I can. I did learn Braille because I think it's important to still have that ability um, it makes me more employable. Um, I had to learn music braille, of course, and then the regular braille. That way, I miss just reading books and the, the silence. And I'm not a big audiobook fan, so mm. the braille was very useful. But for technology, I mean, gosh, they come out with new stuff all the time. So I took I took advantage of VoiceOver on the phone. For the computer, I used Jaws, which is text to speech software. So. What it does is it reads everything on my screen and there are keyboard shortcuts that I navigate to to get to a Word document or access my email or get on Facebook or anything like that. What about navigating through the city? Because there's a lot of cars, there's a lot of cop cars around here at PSU. (laughs) I live right by PSU. Oh, okay. Downtown. Yeah, it's insane. And, uh, you know, it's dangerous for anybody. Yes. (laughs) Do you feel safe? Most of the time, yeah. Um, I mean, you saw my husband. He's... He's a big guy. He's a big guy, although I'm his bodyguard. I'm, I'm a little scarier than he is most of the time. I have the stick, so that's the scary thing for most people. <laughs> um, navigating has been 
interesting. Uh, luckily, Portland. Because you live downtown. No, we live in Gresham. Okay, you live in Gresham. Yeah. But, so you, but you're downtown at PSU a lot. A lot, yes. And every everything is downtown. So when I go to a concert or the Oregon Commission for the Blind is right across the, the river on Stark Street or... Um, luckily Portland is easier to navigate than Florence was because it's more of a grid. Um, but there are still, it's still hard to tell some things, um, like what intersection am I at? Or, Hey, I'm supposed to go to this building, but I've never been there before. How am I going to find it? And there are apps to help with that. So of course I use Google maps like every other person does, but I use it in coordination with an app called blind square. And so when you use blind square, it tells you, you are at the intersection of sixth and Stark street and you're coming up on one, eight, eight, six, sixth street. And so that way I know exactly where I'm at. It also tells me when there's an intersection that doesn't have a crosswalk. So that way I'm more careful which means I have to listen for the cars as opposed to just listen for the beep of the crosswalk. This is fascinating. <laughs> There's Honestly. a lot of technology out there. There really is. And they actually have, um, we just found out this year that there is specific technology for blind musicians. It's called Dancing Dots. And you send the music there and they convert it into music braille for you. And there's also a program called um, Lime Aloud where it'll take a finale file, which is an XML file. It's a digital music file that's written in notation, and it'll play it note for note and tell you exactly what note it is and where the note's at and what the note value is, so that way I can learn my music. You've done all this PR, mm -hmm. and do you feel as if, you know, you've had an effect? Do you feel as if you've inspired people? Because you have. I, I Are you aware of this? You're a <laughs> residual effect of all this, all this PR, all this press that you've gotten. I mean, not. I'm really not too aware. You're kind of in a bubble because people come and they talk to you, and there's these great articles that are presented, and then it just kind of goes out into the universe, and everything gets quiet again. Yeah. I do have to say, last quarter um, we had our our winter concert. We were playing Appalachian Spring and Fern Hill at the First United Methodist Church over on Jefferson. And I, we finished the concert and my, it was the one my husband went to and he came to give me a hug and tell me that I missed some notes because that's what he always does. What? Uh, oh yeah, my husband, he'll come up and be like, yeah, I think you were a little fl He knows nothing about music, but he loves to just like try to say musical terms to see if he can figure something out. So he'll be like, I think you missed some notes on that third movement and you came in flat on that G sharp. And I'm like, okay, thank you, honey. But as I was sitting there talking to him, someone came up to me and he said, I read your article from the Oregonian and I drove an hour and a half just to come see you play. And I think that was the first time I realized that people were actually hearing my story and that they wanted to be a part of it's it. It's true. I mean, you've had total saturation. You were on mm -hmm. every local news channel. <laughs> I spoke oh, I to guess you. I was. <laughs> yes. Luckily, I had the music as a passion before I lost my sight, but I used it to continue moving me forward. It's what got me out of bed every day. It's what kept me going. It's what made me want to get up and do things and be a part of the world. I yes. mean, you did have a sort of a, a down <laughs> period, yes. but the music never really left you. No, it, it went quiet. And the best way I can describe it is when everything went silent, when there was silence in my life, I knew I was at my lowest point, when there was no music whatsoever, when 
there was no radio and I stopped listening to music, I stopped playing music and I knew at that point that I had hit rock bottom and that something had to change or I was never going to pull myself out music of it. Music has that kind of effect that can uplift the human spirit. It really does. Music is its own language. It's not a cliche, it's real. No, it's real. It really is. And some for some people, you know, it's pop music or jazz music and and for me it's most mostly all music. Any music will will affect me somehow but it's not a cliche it really does it's its own language that speaks to something inside of us that nothing else can and it's just it's it's this powerful tool that we don't utilize often enough but I mean if you think about it like watch any movie on mute and it doesn't have the same effect because you're missing the music and the sound and and that that drawing effect you know I wouldn't do this show if I if I couldn't get to use transitions with music Mm -hmm. music adds an element a mystical uh, it heightens everything it it really brings it to life it does you're listening to pdxpodcast.com Every single culture in the world has some sort of music. It may not be something that we recognize as music necessarily, but every culture does. It's a connection that everybody can share. And Arabic, Arabic music has a, a very different structure. Yes, it does. Um, it's part of why I love Arabic. I love the language, the food, the people, all of it. But the music... Um, very much like you hear um, Southeast Asian music from India or Pakistan of that that nature. It has a much more flowing aspect to it. And they utilize something that we don't, which is called quarter tones and semitones. That's right. I've heard that. Yes. So that makes it incredibly challenging. Is it a mystical aspect of the music? I think Would so. Would you say yes? Absolutely. I think so. It, it You know, our tonal system, it's, it's a 12-tone system. And um, you have the piano, which is equal temperament and means that every note is tuned exactly a, a certain amount from the other one. And then you have just toned instruments where everything's kind of toned off of each other, but not necessarily equal distant. That's more string players and, and gamelan and things of that nature. And when you get into things with quarter tones and semitones, the, the difference between them is so minute, but you can still hear it and it's just... It's just something so exotic yes. and fascinating about it. I actually it. heard that from belly dancers. Yes. Lots of <laughs> belly dancers in the city. Oh, Can, really? I didn't know that. Oh, lots. <laughs> Thanks so much. This was uh, this was great. <laughs> Love doing it. Thank you. And I learned a bit about the viola today. It's, it's a great instrument. It right. really is. <laughs> <laughs> Always like to learn something. Thank you again. <laughs> Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to the Weekly Portland Podcast. My name is Gregory Day. I will be here next week. Please join me. <laughs>